tuck into more Fry's English delight. This week, Stephen Fry emphasises the importance of intonation, starting with a nostalgic memory. Crystal Palace 1, West Ham United 1, Derby County 0, Leeds United 2. Saturday tea time and the poetic ritual of the football results. And the expert listener, myself included, knew the outcome of every match before announcer John Webster finished each individual score. Cadence 1, numbers 0. So, Manchester United 2, West Bromwich Albion 1, Division 2. Blackburn Rovers 2, Norwich City 1. Wait a second, what was that again? Blackburn Rovers 2, Norwich City 1. Let me have a try. My allegiance to Norwich City just won't allow that kind of thing. Manchester United 1, Norwich City 3. Real Madrid 2, Norwich City 4. Yes, not convincing. Intonation can make sentences do somersaults. I don't think so can be an expression of uncertainty or an example of withering sarcasm. Not bad, given the right tone, can glow with praise. What is this thing called love? This funny thing called love? What is this thing called love? If spoken with the wrong intonation, it can easily undermine Cole Porter's romantic intentions. Try it. What is this thing called love? But don't try it now. Let's keep listening. What is this thing called love? The writer Dorothy Parker was once so bored at a party that whenever anyone came up to her and asked, How are you? What have you been doing? She replied, I've just killed my husband with an axe and I feel fine. Because she said it with the intonation usually used for party small talk, every one of her interrogators simply smiled and drifted on. New York, 1939, and sadly there's no evidence that Dorothy Parker met VODA, short for Voice Operation Demonstrator, one of the first ever speech synthesizers created by the Bell Telephone Company and exhibited at the New York World's Fair. That sounded awfully flat. How about a little expression? Say the sentence in answer to these questions. Who saw you? She saw me. Whom did she see? She saw me. Well, did she see you or hear you? She saw me. Will you please make the voters say for our, our Eastern listeners, good evening, radio audience. Good evening, And now for our Western listeners, say, good afternoon, radio audience. Whoa. To coax Voda to express himself with such an apparent grasp of human intonation, the operator needed to master a challenging set of pedals and levers and a ten-finger keyboard. It's a complexity we take totally for granted in our everyday speech. With me now is Dr. Jeff Lindsay, who's a speech coach and honorary lecturer in linguistics at University College London, and he'll be our guru for this particular programme. 
Jeff, you've spent a lifetime listening to us speak. You've taught phonetics. How would you define intonation? Intonation refers to the tunes or the melodies that we can put on a phrase when we speak. We produce a stream of speech and we generally break it up into phrases. And each one of those phrases gets a, a pitch contour, pitch being the property in terms of which we differentiate high from low and rising from falling. Um, and so those uh, changes can turn one phrase into several different utterances, whether it's Stephen Fry or Stephen Fry. Um, it's the same phrase. The words haven't changed, but the utterance has become different, and it's intonation that's accomplished that. Right. Well, well let's continue by listening to two of the most polarised patterns of intonation we've been able to find at the very opposite ends of the up downy spectrum. Dalek meets Welshwoman. Dai? I know you're down here somewhere. Dai? Halt, woman. Oh. What are you doing down here? You gave me quite a turn. Who are you then? I am a Dalek. My mission on this planet is to make all humans speak properly on one note, like me. Well, uh, I'm Bloodwin, and I couldn't speak on one note if I tried. Your way of speaking is ridiculous. No, it isn't, Flower. We all speak like this in Wales. It adds a bit of interest, you know, variety. I do not like variety. Well, never you mind. You just stay down here, then you won't have to listen, isn't it? Now, I must find my dye. Excuse me. Exterminate. Oh, there's lovely. <laughs> that was from a 1982 BBC Schools programme, a Dalek on a mission impossible to make all humans, including the Welsh, speak properly on one note. But, Jeff, even if we don't talk like Daleks or like Welsh people, our intonation is hugely important not just to the way we communicate but to our identity, to the way we express ourselves and tell people who we are. Exactly. I mean, it certainly is part of our identity because it doesn't just stand to reason. There isn't only ever one intonation pattern that we could use. And different linguistic systems, different speech communities have different characteristic patterns. We heard there the Welsh woman using that extremely characteristic rising, falling pattern. But this is the big difference in terms of our definitions between intonation and tone proper. So we say that East Asian languages like Mandarin and Cantonese and Thai are tone languages and also many, many languages in, in Africa or tone languages too, Zulu, Yoruba, Hausa, etc. And in these cases, what we're doing is we're changing one word into another word by changing the pitch. Yes, and in fact we have an example of that from Mandarin. Cathy Hall is the speaker. The first tone is high level. Ma, it means mother. The second tone is rising. Ma, which means linen. The third tone is falling, rising. Ma, which means horse. And the fourth tone, falling. Ma, which means to scold. Whoa, that's confusing. So if you get the wrong ma, you could end up calling your mother a horse or a piece of linen. Ma, 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 yes, it could be. It could be horse, yeah. Ma, 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 ma. Ma! Now forget mothers, horses and linen. We're back with the English language at the venerable Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, RADA, where students are limbering up for the day. 
Later, we'll be eavesdropping on their intonation class, a grasp of intonational possibilities being vital to the actor's art. Like an actor, uh, a politician needs to know how to speak. The Right Honourable David Blunkett, MP. It's not what you say, it's the way that you say it. And it is. He may not be the most musical of politicians, but is David's ear especially in tune with the subtleties of intonation? Sometimes I will pick up something that others would have missed. Just that little intonation, maybe that sneer. It's been a great compensation for not being able to see people's faces, and actually sometimes it's been a great blessing not seeing the expression on people's faces, particularly, I think, when I was in Cabinet, And listening to, say, Radio 4 Today programme, you pick up those different intonations. Jim Nocte indicates to me sometimes when I'm down the line that he's quite bored with the interview. And I want to say, come on, Jim, you didn't really want to do this interview with me, but have a go, would you? Just make an effort. (laughs) Accustomed as he is to public speaking, David, unlike some other politicians, who, of course, could be nameless, doesn't think he's perfect. How you say it sometimes comes out wrong, even when you're skilled at it. Often when I've played back a recording that I've done of an interview or a speech, I found it quite excruciating, and I try to learn from the intonation. Was I clear? Did I get my message across? Uh, Did I put it in a way that people could understand? Did I lose myself in a, a great verbiage without the comma or the full stop or the semicolon, if you were reading it? Now, now that's an interesting idea, Jeff. You're a professor of phonetics. Um, How does intonation relate to punctuation? Well, it's a very interesting question. Spoken language really is richer than written language, but the functions do overlap. So, for example, we've got what you might call the grammatical function, say the difference between sentence types like statement and question. And punctuation gives you the full stop and the question mark. Intonation can also be used to make that kind of difference. And then you've got the segmentation function of dividing the stream of language up into digestible pieces. And we've got commas and full stops and that sort of thing in punctuation. And also, we've got ways of saying that I'm halfway through and I've reached the end in intonation. Intonation came first. Punctuation is merely a way of trying to make the much later technology of writing and then printing mimic uh, some of the extraordinary flexibilities of spoken language. Exactly. Well, back now to Rada and see how the student lovies are getting on in their intonation class with voice teacher Robert Price. A useful definition of intonation is that it's route one between the actor's consciousness, or maybe even unconsciousness, and the audience's consciousness, or maybe even unconsciousness. So if you want to foreground something, then you want to give it a a little movement of pitch, or loudness, or pace, or there are several other dynamics. But intonation is route one. So if you want something to land, then you usually give it a little bit of a, a lift, But there are other things it does too, rather fascinating things. Like, for instance, it connects with emotion. So let's take the sentence, where did you leave my keys? And then we'll see what happens when we move it with pitch. So when we play with with intonation, a fairly broad form of intonation. So I'll play you some notes. So let's take your voice, Rashmika, and see what happens if we play with that. So... Where did you leave my keys? Where did you leave my keys? How's that? I want to find the place where you feel, you know, you're just sort of quietly chatting to your flatmate. 
I think it's probably the one lower. Where did you leave my keys? No, maybe not. Maybe higher. Where did you leave my keys? Yeah. Yeah. Where did you leave my keys? So let's see what happens if we go a little bit above that nose. Okay. Where did you leave my keys? Keep going. Where did you leave my keys? What happens to you when you go up? It becomes like kind of a bit hysterical, a little bit like excited about the whole thing. And yeah. <laughs> I don't know. How, yeah. What happens if you go? Let's, let's take you down then. Where did you leave my keys? Where did you leave my keys? Gosh, I hope she's found them by now. Meanwhile, back in real life. When my sister's here, she'll be like screaming at us and she'll be like, Bianca, Lola, get down from there, stop arguing. And someone will call and she'll go, hello, this is Anne Carp speaking. Immediately change. <laughs> it's so funny. But yeah, I think, I think it's pretty easy to tell how she's feeling from her voice. Lola's spilling the family beans there. But let's give her mother, journalist and author Anne Carp, who has written a book about the voice, a chance to speak for herself. I'm sure it's true. I'm very leaky through my intonation. And uh, what was that thing you were saying about uh, when I don't listen? Um, I can tell she doesn't listen to me when she speaks in like a monotone and her voice doesn't pitch or anything. So how do I sound? You kind of smile and nod your head and then you just go, yeah, okay, right. Da, 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 da. By the same token, I can tell if you really don't want to be spoken to. I can tell from your intonation that you're going to just get more and more irritated. Mm. I can hear in myself when I'm in a bad mood or when I don't want to talk to you. So you're using your voice almost like a, a, a weapon or a shield to get someone to back off. Yeah. You know, keep off. You're not going to have much joy getting at me. And yeah. I think a lot of the time we do hear it very well and we do understand that, yeah. Mm. This familial reading of the voice and its emotions through patterns of intonation starts much earlier than you would think, in fact, even before birth. Colwyn Trevathan, Professor Emeritus of Child Psychology at the University of Edinburgh. The mother's voice gets conducted very efficiently to the baby down the spinal column. And if the baby's lying with its head resting on her back it'll get a pretty good transmission from her vocal cords. It's not hi-fi. I mean, you lose some frequencies, but there's enough there for the baby to pick up the intonation. And there's very good anatomical evidence that the auditory system, the listening equipment of the brainstem, the part that's particularly sensitive to emotional colour and so on, is very well developed in the fetus. Lucy, can you see? Can you? I see you. I diddly diddly do. <laughs> it's not funny. Just sit down there. There's a lot of very good research on the patterns that mothers produce when they speak to babies. And in fact, the type of speech, linguists call it a register of speech, that is recognised is motherese. Now, some people think that that's politically incorrect and it should be called parentese. And some people think that that's too sloppy, so they call it infant-directed speech, and it's getting worse and worse, you know, as the definitions get more rational. Now, people talk to dogs, old people, foreigners, and babies, always in roughly the same way. That is, they talk sympathetically, um, rhythmically, and not too fast. A dog will pick up your particular intonation, the way you speak. We do tend to talk to dogs in sort of 
baby talk and I try to avoid that a bit because it's a working dog and the dog will know whether it's a stern voice come on behave yourself sit get on your bed and when you're giving it praise in my case when my guide dog's done really well and so really good boy good boy and the same intonation for good girl because I've had three bitches and three dogs the same intonation comes across and works every time I have a different intonation at home when I'm playing with the dog and it wouldn't be an intonation that you'd want to put over on Radio 4, so I'm not going to do it. Oh, spoil sport. Well, uh, Jeff, Jeff Lindsay, we've been hearing about the emotional rather than the linguistic properties of intonation, haven't we? There's a distinction, presumably. Well, exactly. I think one of the most interesting things about intonation and one of the great challenges for studying it is this fact that it's got a foot in two camps. One foot of intonation, as it were, is in language proper, and the other foot is in paralanguage, paralinguistic areas, mm. tone of voice, voice Which quality. Which might include wheedling or menacing or other ways of trying to get some emotional response. Exactly. And some people include facial expression and body language in paralinguistic. Some don't. And so we know that universally there is an association between a high degree of excitement and tension emotionally and high pitch. If you think of a football commentator when somebody's about to score a goal, and way up here and that sort of <laughs> Thing. And on the other hand, low pitch is associated with you know being tired or possibly depressed or in, in, a, in a low mood. There was quite a big problem in the 1970s that in India and Pakistan it is considered polite to raise the pitch of your voice and indeed the speed of it, the frequency of it. And for us, the opposite is true. The more slow and Jeeves-like and gentlemanly you are, the more relaxed, the more polite it seems. So in jobs like being bank tellers, for example, Asians were at a great disadvantage because when they were trying to get more polite about something, English people were getting very irritated because to us that sounds like whining, complaining. It has a completely different outcome for us. It's quite fascinating because really we're talking here about the pitch contour and pitch is just a single linear parameter. Mm. So it's just to do with the number of times a second the vocal cords vibrate Indeed. in the throat. And there's also the rapidity of speech. Tempo of speech. Yeah. Again, though in intonation we tend to talk more about the pitch than the, than the yeah. tempo, but you're absolutely right there. It's an acculturated thing. It's not a universal fact of language. No, so you have these universal emotional things but they can compete with each other yeah. and you also have the cultural factor that you just mentioned. That's an exceptionally good point. So let's hear what happens to Anne Carp when she crosses the Atlantic. I go to America and I find myself being much more sort of breezy and much more encouraging. And it's not that I put on a fake American accent, but I sort of Americanize my, my intonation so that it's more upbeat and more positive and I don't sound like the kind of miserableist that I really am. <laughs> but Anne has an interesting theory about fitting in and intonation. We basically like people who sound like us. Now, that may sound very narcissistic, but it's to do with partly wanting other people's approval, so we change our voices to make them sound more like other people. And all this happens through intonation. There was a, a famous study done in the United States on the Larry King show on CNN, and they found that when Larry King was talking to A-list guests like you know, Bill Clinton or Elizabeth Taylor or Barbara Streisand. He adapted his voice to theirs in terms of the pitch, the tempo and the volume. He sort of, in a way, mimicked them. 
And when he talked to B-list guests like Dan Quayle, the, the politician, the opposite happened. They adapted their voice to his. So through looking at the adaptation, who was adapting their voice to whom, you could almost map out the power relations between them, who was more powerful and who was less powerful. Whoa, is that true, Jeff? Does our intonation reveal our place in the pecking order? Well, I'm sure it's true that we can adapt ourselves to the person we're speaking to, but looking at intonation in particular, I think there are ways that you can sound more authoritative or more powerful. I mean, one thing that I find quite interesting is a phenomenon called downstep, which in, in English is sometimes used to show a degree of control, so that instead of doing the normal thing of going up onto the main syllable, mm-hmm. you might go down onto the main syllable. And Margaret Thatcher made quite a lot of use of this. So whereas a more neutral way of saying a phrase might be overwhelming majority, she would often say things like, the overwhelming majority of people. These are our policies. This is the direction in which we are going. And I think we all agree on this. And when you give examples like that, people often react and they say, right, so it's a domineering kind of intonation, then it's patronising. But it's all context dependent, because take that same pattern and now put it in a Hollywood trailer for a movie, a heartwarming movie, and all of a sudden you know, you get this Christmas Paramount Pictures Feel the Magic, (laughs) Come on a Journey, and it's really that same pattern. It's about actually reassurance I think what she was trying to do is to reassure that she was totally in control of the economic question or the political question she was being asked to do that quite deliberately that actually took away a lot of the things that some people disliked about her. Yes, I think that's right. It's this sense of control, and it's very, very context-dependent. In one situation, it might seem quite parental. It Mm. might seem a little bit patronising. In another situation, it might seem avuncular and reassuring. Just sit back, we'll take you on this journey through the movie. You find this sort of downstep used in various ways, and it's always very difficult and challenging to tease out what is the meaning. The shading is slightly different depending on the situation. Radio Ident's, for example, you know, this uh, BBC Radio 4 might be a more Thatcherite way of doing it, but if you climb up towards that downstep, you get this thing that we hear constantly in commercials and non-Radio 4 Ident's, like Five Live. Yes, you uh, wouldn't next on Radio 4 (laughs) would not please the average Radio 4 It wouldn't quite fit in, would it? (laughs) Well, okay, let's return to the world of the theatre and the most recognisable question in the entire canon of English literature, the Hamlet question. Legions of celebrated actors have all given it their own particular international stamp. To be or not to be, that is the question. It's that voder back again. Apologies. We couldn't afford Kenneth Branagh now that he's been knighted. Of course, that is a rhetorical question, to be or not to be, but let's return to the rather voice class to see how our potential Hamlets are dissecting other questions from the play. Some questions will lift in pitch and some questions won't. So let's see if we can find the rule. Let's read them round and see if they go up. But what in faith make you from Wittenberg? Lady, shall I lie on your lap? Have you eyes? Do you see nothing there? Who is it to be buried in it? How long will a man lie on the earth ere he rot? Any patterns emerging? Are you noticing that some do and some don't? Yeah. 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 So which ones do? Where did you definitely hear a lift of pitch? It's fascinating this, because this means that we all have within us a shared rule about how pitch works, intonation works, in our language. 
And I'm not sure we quite know what the rule is. Yeah, I think it depends on what you want yeah, from exactly. the other person. If you actually want to ask them, like you don't know the answer, yeah. then it's going to go up because you're actually curious. But if you already know the answer and you want to reinforce that you're right or something mm. like that, then that's when it goes down. So you think a rhetorical question will go down? A question where you know the answer you want to induce yeah. in the other person? It's interesting, it's wrong. Is it wrong? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's all of these things are true sometimes, but there's a very simple rule, and we mostly follow it, and it's, re it's really fascinating. Shall I tell you? Yeah. If the answer can be yes or no, then we go up in pitch. If it's a more complex question, often a question with a wh word in it, like why or what or when, then we don't. <clears throat> so all of the questions where we go up, lady, shall I lie in your lap, can be... Yes, come and lie in my lap, or no, I don't want you to lie in my lap. But, but what if faith make you from Wittenberg? Yes. <laughs> no, it would be very, very strange. So that's the basic rule. So if I say to you, do you want to go for a pint? There'll be a little bit of lifting. Fancy a drink? Yes. Yes. But if I say, do you want um, Guinness or a vodka and tonic? Then it'll level or drop in pitch. Well, I don't mind a rising intonation on a proper question, but a pet hate of mine is that rising intonation where there isn't a question at all. And you don't even have to be an Aussie to use it. People use it all the time when they're making statements. They seem to be making questions. We don't quite know why. It appears to have come over with neighbours. How have we got into this situation? Jeff, Jeff, I turn to you in all desperation. <laughs> I was watching TV the other night and saw the CEO of an American airline, a guy well into middle age and with lots of power and gravitas responding to every question in uptalk, or HRT is, is another uh, high-rise terminal, rather unfortunate uh, initialism <laughs> there. So I think the point is it's spread like wildfire. I've even had people tell me what a terrible thing it is in uptalk. So I just hate it when the people go up at the end of sentences? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> For you and me, where we associate a high-rising termination in the pitch inextricably with really being asked genuinely an information question, mm. it's very hard to undo that feeling when somebody is using the high-rise terminal in a much more casual and less questioning way. So we sort of yeah. feel as though an, a response is being crowbarred out of us. It adds tension to what would otherwise be a more normal exchange. For those who don't use it so yeah. much, it's intonational difference, because it has that ability to go right to your emotions, yeah. it's much harder to turn off your own system. And we had the Daleks earlier on, I remember, talking in a monotone. And I remember when I was a child, the thing that really used to send me scurrying behind the sofa for real was not the flat monotone Dalek, but the Dalek up talk. Because yeah. when you got to the end of the episode, just before the theme tune crashed in, absolutely. they would go absolutely ballistic. And instead of saying, exterminate, they'd start going, exterminate! It's like a pan of milk boiling over or a machine overheating. You can't turn off your reaction to it. I think we can all agree that that extra quality that our mouths, brains, larynxes, that allow us to intone in our speech makes language all the richer, all the more poetic, all the more exciting, all the more vigorous, all the more flexible, and all the more useful. Absolutely. Imagine what speech would be like if we weren't able to change our pitch contour, always speaking on a monotone. Exactly. So what better thing can we end with than that thing called love? Thank you very much, Jeff Lindsay. What is this thing called love? 
What's this thing called love? <laughs> what is this thing called love? What is this thing called love? <laughs> and you can hear more of that conversation with Jeff Lindsay on the Radio 4 website. Fry's English Delight was presented by Stephen Fry and produced by Marilyn Harris. It was a testbed production for BBC Radio 4.